Let's read together in the prose version of the Psalms, uh, Psalm number 85, dedicated as so many of the Psalms are to the director of music. Of the sons of Korah, the heading says, uh, one of the, uh, the choirs in the temple uh, to whom the, uh, the worship services were committed, uh, a psalm. You showed favour to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. Then Selah. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him, and prepares the way for his steps. I hope you have an interest in church history. I don't mean necessarily that you read great tomes of church history. There are perhaps those of you who do who delight in that. But all of God's people should have an interest in the history of the Christian church to learn from what God has done in the past. It is a very fruitful study. And if you read any amount of church history at all, you'll come across inevitably times of revival. Times when the church in a particular area, perhaps in a whole nation, has been at a very low ebb. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit moves in a particularly powerful way. And the church experiences a sudden surge of new life. Many are transformed in a very short time. It seems in revival times that what would usually take years somehow is compressed into perhaps weeks or months. And the effects of revival aren't just within the church, but they overflow into the surrounding community. One example that I'm sure you've at least heard of is the 1859 uh, revival in this part of the world, a time that had a tremendous, profound effect on the church and on the province as a whole. Well, today in this part of the world, we would have to reckon that 
The church is at a low ebb. Yes, there are growing churches in the United Kingdom. Thank God for that. It's interesting, in fact, that almost the only churches that are growing in the United Kingdom are conservative evangelical churches. Uh, and some of the more traditional uh, end of the theological spectrum. But the church is in between. The churches that say we've got to keep in step with the spirit of our day, keep in step with the values of society, they're just disappearing. They're dying right, left, and center throughout the whole nation. And the professing church in general is at a low ebb. Sadly, even the evangelical cause. Uh, in Britain is slowly shrinking. And we see, of course, increasingly from many denials of fundamental Christian doctrines. If you want to hear basic Christianity denied, you could listen to some of those bishops and others who are leaders of the church Doctrines denied, moral standards from Scripture uh, that are set aside, that we're told are not appropriate to the 21st century. And we're surely living in days when we need to be crying out to God for a time of revival. I want to turn to the psalm we read earlier, to Psalm 85, and to focus our thoughts on verse number 6. We're taking the question here in Psalm 85, verse 6, as our theme this evening. Will you not revive us? Will you not revive us? And as we think of this theme here in the psalm and in the wider context of Scripture, we see, first of all, the reality the reality. Because the psalm begins really by taking stock of the true situation of God's people. We have an honest assessment in the light of what their relationship to God ought to be. How should it be? And then how is it really? Because there is a great gap between the two. There's an honest assessment of the reality. And that really is the first essential step if we would seek revival from the Lord. An honest assessment of where the church, the professing church, really is. Because often the true state of the church is ignored. There can be a great deal of pretending among Christians that things are better than they are. And it's true in every denomination. I don't think any denomination is immune from this feeling. Uh, Pretending that we're doing better than really we are. And you may have had the experience, I certainly have, of hearing how well things are going in a certain place. And they're going forward, and it's wonderful. And you go there and you think, it's nothing like that. We're not immune, sadly, from pretending 
that things are better than they really are. Maybe there's an element of not wanting to let God down by telling it like it really is. But the psalmist will have none of that. There's an honest assessment of the situation. No pretending that things are better than they really are. Honest assessment. We think of it in our own context of the church in general in its widest sense. Perhaps we need to look at our own particular part of the church as well. Unless we look at the feelings of others and pat ourselves on the back, an honest assessment of where we are ourselves with the Lord. How is it going between you and the Lord? Is it all it should be? Is it all it could be? I'd be surprised if the answer from any of us is yes. It's as good as it could be. There is a need for reviving. So what is the reality that the psalmist sets before us here? Well, two things really that stand out. First of all, he he writes about past covenant blessing. Past covenant blessing. What has God done in the past for his people? You showed favor to your land, O Lord, he writes in the very first verse. You notice the Lord, the covenant name of God. The Lord, the Lord who expresses his covenant nature, particularly in dealing with the sins that close us off from a relationship with him. Our sins are a barrier, they're an obstacle, and sin needs to be dealt with. And the Lord is the God who is gracious He's the God of salvation. He's the God who has provided for removing that barrier of sin so that we can be truly his people. Again, we read verse 2. God has covered all their sins. Covering is a very important idea in the Scriptures. It's the language of propitiation. That's a a big theological word, but it's an important word. It is the idea of sin being covered over from the sight of a holy God. Covered over, not in the sense it's pushed under the carpet and we pretend it's not there. Sin won't go away if it's pushed under the carpet. But it's covered over by the means God has provided. It is really dealt with It is really removed. God is the God who's provided the means of removing the sins of his people. That's why sinners like you and I can be in God's covenant. It's because he deals with our sin and provides forgiveness and removes the barrier to belonging to his people. And that covering of sin, that propitiation, is right at the heart of the new covenant in which we as Christians find ourselves. Because at the center of the work of God and the center of God's covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through his work 
that our sins are covered over. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ that God has made provision for us to be forgiven, to be brought into his covenant, to be brought into that spiritual city that we were thinking about in Hebrews 12 this morning. We read, for example, in Romans 3.25 of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And that takes us right to the heart of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ sheds his blood on the cross. He bears the burden of our sin and our guilt. He pays the price for our salvation. And when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are covered over. They're forgiven. They will be remembered no more. And that is the work that Christ performs. We're brought into a covenant of love with the Lord. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's God's covenant. And we belong to him and he loves us and we love him. Past covenant blessings. And those should fill your heart with praise and thanksgiving. If you're a Christian tonight, this is what the Lord has done for you. And that should delight you. It should move you to praise him. What a great God. Past covenant blessings. But the Psalm's not written in happy days. And so as part of the reality that the psalmist faces, he also tells us about present covenant chastening. Present covenant chastening. The situation is very different from the enjoyment of that beautiful covenant of love. Now he writes in verse 4 about your displeasure. Verse 5, your anger. The Lord's hand is heavy on his people. Will you be angry with us forever, he cries out. That's a heart cry, isn't it? And if God is angry, it must be because of sin in his people. If God is angry with them, it's not because he got out of bed on the wrong side this morning. It's because he sees sin in those who profess to be his people. And he responds to it. They lose blessings that they could have had and should have had. And he's making his covenant people aware of their failings. In a sense, he's shaking them to make them realize what's gone wrong. Their relationship to him isn't what it should be. And because he loves them, he's going to waken them up and make them face that reality. Something needs to be done about it. They're breaking the covenant with him by their sins. They're being disobedient. They're being unfaithful. And the Lord's making them aware of it. If he didn't do that, it would be because he didn't care about them. It wouldn't matter whether they sinned or not, but it does matter. It matters because God loves these people. And he's going to bring them back to himself 
Isn't it a wonderful blessing that God doesn't leave us in our disobedience and our backsliding? He loves us and he does something to waken us up to our sins and our failings so that we face up to them and are dealt with. Our sins rob us of blessings that we could have had. Think of the rebukes that the Lord addresses to some of the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. And now he points out to them places where they're failing, that need to be addressed, or the consequences will be serious. And on the personal individual level, again, we forfeit blessing by our disobedience and our sin. We sang Psalm 66, verse 18, the psalmist says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And we've got to face that fact that there are the times when we do not receive what we ask in prayer because of sin that we won't confess. We forfeit blessing. And so the psalm's written in a time of spiritual decline. And remember, decline spiritually in the church, in a denomination, in your own life, can be something that develops very gradually. It's not necessarily one dramatic fall, but it can be a very slow, gradual drifting. Letter to the Hebrews were warned about drifting away in the pictures of a, of a boat that slipped its moorings. And gradually it drifts further away. And we can do that in our own spiritual life almost without noticing until suddenly we realize how far we've gone. But the Lord's gracious when he wakens us up to that drifting, the reality. Past covenant blessing, praise God for it. Present covenant chastening, Listen to what the Lord would say to us, the reality. But then secondly, the psalm, this verse particularly brings before us the revival, the revival. It's evident that the psalmist, as he comes before the Lord in these difficult, sad circumstances, is expressing repentance on behalf of God's people. He's not just speaking as an individual about his own spiritual life, but he's writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit to acknowledge the sin and the failure among the people of God. And that repentance is essential. There is no other way to restore the blessing than the way of repentance. And really in the psalm, the psalmist is is throwing himself and the people of God on the Lord's mercy. He's not coming trying to make excuses and saying, well, it's not our fault or it's not as bad as you think. There's no pretending. There's no minimizing of sin. He knows that the only hope for God's people is in the Lord himself. God must deal with their sin in grace and mercy. And that's the point the church must come to before it'll be revived 
to recognize that God's mercy is essential, to recognize that only God can deal with their coldness and their disobedience and their failures. And he brings us sometimes, doesn't he, to that point in our own spiritual experience where we understand where we have drifted and how we feel the Lord and we know he's the only one who can deal with it. We need his grace, his mercy. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will help us. And so he prays. Uh, Literally, uh, the prayer reads, will you turn? Will you bring us to life. Now, none of the translations quite, uh, I think, brings that out uh, the way it should. But will you turn? Will you bring us to life? That's his prayer. First of all, will you turn? And the picture surely is of God for a time turning his back on his people. It's not that he doesn't love them anymore. He never ceases to love them. Praise God, that's the case. But as far as blessings concerned, for a time God has turned his back. And what God's people need is for him to turn his face to them once again. And we've sung about that already. Psalm 67 verse 1, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. His back is turned. We need God in love and in grace to turn his face to us and look on us and bless us. Turn to us, Lord. The shining of God's face, of course, symbolizing favor and blessing. And when we're backslidden, personally and as a church, don't we long to experience again God's shining face. God's smile, as it were, upon us. I think that's the picture. That God would smile upon his people, that they would experience his love afresh. Love that never changes, but that we would experience that love in a fresh way. And it is, of course, the matter of our relationship to God, the covenant is about a gracious family relationship. He is ours and we are his. But we want to experience that afresh. Do you have the sense sometimes of God's back being turned, of blessing lacking, that your spiritual life isn't what it should be. You're not going forward the way you want to and the way you know you should. Cry out to God, will you turn? Let your face shine on us and how we long for that. And the Lord longs again to be among us. The covenant promise we've often quoted in Leviticus 26 and 12 I will walk among you and be your God. We want him again to be walking among us, not with his back turned, but his face shining on us. Will you turn? Will you not 
revive us then, the psalmist prays. There is life in the hearts of these people. But it's flickering. And it needs to be fanned into flame once again. Perhaps once it burned very brightly. But the fire is going down. It needs to be fanned into flame by the Spirit of God. That's revival. And what we long for and what we cry out to God for is inner renewal. Renewal of our commitment to the Lord. We'll be his people. Renewal of our love and our zeal. A longing for his presence. Not just that we know the theology of God being with us, but we experience it in our hearts and lives day by day. Not a distant God with his back turned because of our sin, but a God who is smiling upon us and is blessing us. That we are renewed and our relationship to God is renewed. We want it to be deeper. Do you not long for a deeper knowledge of God and a closer walk with the Lord? A life that's centered on our triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus, as he speaks to his Father, John 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a matter of knowing the Lord. Not just knowing the theology, that's vital, but knowing it in a living, personal way that shapes you, that directs you, that shapes everything about how you think, how you act, how you feel. We want God to revive us and fan that life again into flame. And revival begins with a deeper knowledge of the Lord and a desire for more. 1859 revival began with a few men praying. Insignificant in the world's terms. What could come of that? And in the providence of God, an outbreak of revival spread from that prayer meeting to touch hundreds and thousands of people. There was a longing for God. That's why they were praying. Longing for God and God's presence place of the deadness and indifference that too often we see in our hearts. We long to see a fresh love for the Lord and a desire for holiness. The two will go together. If you love the Lord, you'll long to be holy. And those are marks of real revival. Not noise, not lots of emotion, but love for the Lord, longing for holiness. There's revival. Will you turn? Will you not revive us? And then he prays, verse 7, Show us your unfailing love. And really that undergirds everything he says about the revival. This is the, the, the basis for praying for revival. Why would we expect God to answer prayers to revive us. 
This is the reason. His unfailing love. His covenant love. The love that chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.4. Love that's taken hold of us and united us to Christ in his death and resurrection that has seated us in heavenly places already in Christ. God has done this in his covenant love for us. He's given us salvation. The psalmist refers uh, to that. He speaks of God's salvation. Grant us your salvation. And that takes in not just the, the, the point of conversion, the beginning of salvation, but these times of reviving and refreshing. And it's because of his unfailing love. And he's taken hold of us. And he won't let us go. And he can't let us go. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's unfailing love. And because of God's unfailing love, we can pray, we can cry out to him, will you turn? Will you not revive us? And he'll answer. There's the reality. There's the revival. And finally, there's the result. The result. If God is pleased to turn and revive his church, revive his people, revive us, what will flow from that revival? The key element the psalmist highlights here, that your people may rejoice in you. That your people may rejoice in you. When spiritual decline has set in, if your spiritual life is declining, if your spiritual temperature is going down, then usually that'll be evident in losing your joy in the Lord. Perhaps one of the first symptoms of decline and the need to be revived. Having opportunity for worship, spending time with the Lord, it doesn't delight you the way maybe it once did. And you sense that the joy's gone. And that should ring the alarm. And the joy in your spiritual life is declining if it's gone. You need revival. Maybe even find at times you would avoid the Lord's presence because you're uncomfortable in his presence. Think of Adam and Eve hiding behind the tree in Eden. Pathetic. And yet sometimes we do that. We avoid the Lord because we know things aren't right between us. 
We need revival. And a mark of that reviving that the Spirit comes upon us will be a return of joy. That God's people will rejoice in you, in him, in fellowship with the Lord. We are to be marked by rejoicing, by praise, by thanksgiving. I'm not suggesting Christians will always go round with a smile on their faces. At times, it would be inappropriate. At times when there are trials and there are sorrows, there won't be an outward smile. And yet the Christian, by God's grace, can rejoice even in trials and hard times. And there will be rejoicing. There will be thanksgiving for the goodness of God. There will be a deeper taste for worship. Worship with the Lord's people. Worship privately. We want to be in the Lord's presence. Instead of avoiding him, instead of hiding away from him, we want to be with the Lord. We seek him out. We look for opportunities to spend time with him. That's a mark of revival. And rejoicing in him. Not just in what he gives us, but in the Lord himself. Oh yes, we rejoice in his gifts and his blessings. Of course we do. But more important than anything he gives us is the Lord himself. And to be in his presence and to learn more of him and to be drawn closer to him, those rejoice the heart of a Christian. And it will lead to obedience. It is very practical. Jesus reminds us, John fourteen six, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So this rejoicing, this reviving, isn't divorced in any way from day by day obedience to the Lord. But obedience, that's a delight, not a burden. Because we love the Lord. And he's filled our hearts with fresh love for him. And if we love him, we want to do what he commands us to do. Reviving will be characterized by practical obedience, godliness, keeping God's law, not as a burden, but as a joy, out of a heart of love. And it empowers evangelism, surely. Don't we want others to share that joy? Don't we want others to know this God and to experience the wonder of salvation, to know what it is to be a covenant child of God? How could we not want others to share in that blessing? Revival goes along with mission and evangelism. Out of times of reviving, often there have come great missionary movements. As people are thrust out to tell others about this God and his beauty and his glory and his grace and all the things that thrill the heart of the Christian. We need revival. We need to be praying to the Lord, will you not revive us? We need it in our own hearts, I'm sure we all do. We need it as a denomination. We need it for the church of Jesus Christ.
throughout the nation, throughout the world. God is a God of covenant blessing. God is a God of reviving power. And we need to cry out sincerely, heartily, that he would turn again to us, that he would revive us, that we would have a fresh experience of his unfailing love. May the Lord hear the prayers of his people, that he would revive his church for his glory, and that we might know the joy that such a revival experience gives.